Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. Thank you for joining us this week. We're so excited about Marianne's guest. Henry Mance is a writer for the Financial Times in the UK, and he has just written a most extraordinary book about our relationship with animals. It's called How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. I love that. Yeah, it, it's a really good book, and this is a really good interview. I think you're really going to going to enjoy it. You know, he's relatively new to the issues and it's always interesting to see how really smart people kind of adapt to finding out what's happening to animals. And I would say he's adapted pretty well. So on the Flock bonus segment, I'll be continuing my conversation with Henry. And as always, if you are a Flock member, you'll get that link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after the podcast episode goes up. You can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. If you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, we would really love it if you could join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you're already a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern or 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, where we focus on how to be better activists, how to take care of ourselves, and we talk to some former podcast guests so that you can ask them all your burning questions. So if you are a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. Oh, and you can set up one-on-ones with me too. If you're interested, just email jen at ourhenhouse.org and we will get that going. I've really been enjoying that so much. So it has been quite a week for us here uh, on, on, on my end in the never-ending quest to turn my new old home, 100-year-old home, into a net zero or eco-independent, energy-independent house. The geothermal started digging this week. We're trying to record this in between drilling noises. And so it's exciting to get it started. It's like actually pretty thrilling. I'm really looking forward to seeing how this house adapts to being energy independent, especially when I consider like most of the things in the house are still 100 years old including the windows, which will be being replaced with triple pane per the eco-independent way of being, which is what we're trying to do. And on your end, you finally closed on your house in Rochester. So mazel tov. Thank you. Yes, I did. I closed and it is good to have that past me. I still haven't moved the vast majority of my junk and I use that term advisedly. It just all, when you start to move it, it just all starts to feel like just a bunch of junk. I don't know. But that is the next step. And I am in the house. So that's kind of exciting. It's kind of nice to be in a house that hardly has any furniture in it. And it is exciting to be here in Rochester, even though when I tell people I'm moving to Rochester downstate, they all go, oh, And when I tell people who live in Rochester that I'm moving to Rochester, they they all go, why? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we think it's really cool, but I don't know. Maybe it's that Midwestern kind of, you know, non-promotional thing. And we're from New York City originally, so we're used to promotional types. I don't know what it is, but I really like it here. So far, the weather has been lovely. Uh, People talk a lot about the weather in Rochester and and the impending uh, snow. Uh, So... You know, we'll see how that goes. But weather everywhere is a little uh, frightening these days. So if, if all I have to put up with is a little snow, I think I'll do fine. So, yeah, and I want to I do my house geothermal, too. I'm very inspired 
I don't, you know, you have to look into what you can do. And I'm not sure that geothermal is going to work. You have to have a yard of a certain size. You have to have, be able to get this big drill in. But, you know, other things are going to work. I'm just going to have it looked at. And a lot of people say, oh, but there's going to be a lot of incentives for all of this. And, you know, maybe I should wait. But I think somebody, it's kind of like being vegan. Like somebody has to move forward. And, uh, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's us. So we will keep you updated whether you like it or not. And we'll uh, keep you updated on the vegan scene here in Rochester, whether you like it or not. Well, speaking of whether you like it or not and the vegan scene in Rochester, the Rochesterians who we have been talking to about the fact that we moved up here, when they find out that like a big part of the reason why had to do with the fact that it is a very climate friendly city in the long term projections, everyone here kind of goes, oh, yeah, I guess it is. That's that's funny. And our friend Joe, who was our real estate agent, if you need a real estate agent, DM me and I'll send you his info if you want to move to Rochester. He said that he was on a call recently with like a debrief with all of the real estate folks he works with and some in the area. And they were like, are, are people still moving to Rochester from out of town? And, and he said, yeah, actually, the other folks asked, well, does anyone know why? And he said, I know, I know a bunch of vegans moving here, like a bunch. And it has to do with, I don't know, there's like a new vegan butcher shop here called Grass Fed, which by the way, we are going to have them on the show, the owners of Grass Fed. So I'm excited about that. Also, he mentioned the long-term climate projections and people are like a little bit baffled by it, but I love that it created this opportunity for him to bring it up and for people to like, you know, sort of think differently about what their city has to offer. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of shows that like a big part of activism when you're vegan or when you care about anything really is to talk about it. And so often, uh, you know, people are vegan privately. It just doesn't accomplish that much. So yeah, I, I, I sometimes hate to bring it up, but I always force myself to bring it up. And sometimes I like to bring it up and, just this morning, I went into the coffee shop and equal grounds. equal grounds. It's a gay, well, it's, I mean, it's a gay coffee shop in the sense that the guy who owns it is gay. And it's not like they don't let straight people in, <laughs> but they have a big gay flag or whatever. They have a theme. But anyway, the only plant based milk they have is almond, and there is an upcharge. And I was like, this is annoying. So uh, I did ask, I knew that the only plant based milk they had was almond, but I did ask. What other ones uh, do you do? You have any other ones? He said no, and and then a few minutes later, he said, "What ones do you like?" And I said, "Well, you know, I like oat." And he said, "Oh yeah, a lot of people ask for oat." And I'm like, "Oh, well, then why the hell don't you have it?" <laughs> it's just so bizarre. I'm hoping that my pathetic little act of activism there of bringing it up will uh, result in at least a little oat milk for me. Because, you know, that's what this is all about, is making me happy and getting me some good milk. I like that coffee shop. I feel like the queer flag is actually just, it, it. it's a signal that it's an inclusive place. There was a place like that I used to go to when I lived in LA called Cuties, which was a queer place as well. And it, it does make me think that like when people go that extra mile to make sure to announce that we're welcome there, it is a signal to us that we can be safe there. The same is actually true for veganism too. Like I love it when there's a vegan menu or a vegan or a sticker on the window that says we have vegan options or something like that. It just sort of makes me feel like, yeah, okay. 
I, I'm in. I'm going to go there. So. Well, you know, I think there are two points of view on the whole vegan menu thing. It's nice to have a vegan menu, but it's like the whole supermarket thing. Some people want all the vegan stuff in one place so we can find it. But then others point out that, well, other people more likely find it if it's if it's woven in with in the meat counter where, you know, we don't really want to go. And the same, So that's like the restaurant. If they have a vegan menu, other people are not going to ask for the vegan menu. But if there's a few vegan options on the menu, you know, they might order them. And I don't think, I guess it's debatable whether it's good or bad for them to be labeled vegan vis-a-vis the question of whether other people are going to choose them. Obviously, it's good for us. But but I kind of think we're past the point where something being labeled will put people off. Or am I living in a fantasy world? No, I think you're right. Uh, I don't think it would necessarily put people off. And and now that you mentioned it, I do see the flaws in my metaphor to the queer coffee shop and the inclusive place, because obviously having something like that shows people of, of marginalized communities that it's a safe place for them to go, whereas a vegan item on the menu is not really about us. It's about the animals. So it's not an apples to apples kind of comparison. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I I'm sitting here like, Actually, we're sort of on staycation this week. I was taking off of mo- most of my most of my jobs, except for our, you know uh, the podcast and our hen house, of course. This week, so I'm trying to relax a little bit, and so we actually might go over to the beach later. Like Ontario Beach has some beautiful, beautiful spots, and I was thinking, oh, what can we grab and just go sit there with some nice food? And so I went on to Happy Cow this morning and, you know, Happy Cow has become not that updated to your point, because like most menus that I pass, I'll like, you know, just pop and look in real quick and I'll find the vegan items, but I'd never heard of it before. And it's not on Happy Cow because like maybe 10 years ago, everything was on Happy Cow because there were so many fewer options. And now it's like nobody kept up with it, which is an incredibly good problem to have. Yeah, and it reminds me that I'm incredibly irresponsible about putting things on Happy Cow. It is really useful, even though, as you point out, you can stop almost anywhere and usually find something, not always, particularly in higher-end restaurants. I think you have to be more careful, but I seldom go to higher-end restaurants, so it's not really an issue. But yeah, everybody remember to put things on Happy Cow, and I will try to, too. Well, just like last thing on that, I had just this funny little thing happened the other day. We had a friend over and we were ordering Chinese. She was helping us just sort of build, you know, put up curtains and just do some stuff around the house that is taking a lot of time. And uh, so we ordered lunch from the just the Chinese place around the corner. And we ordered broccoli and bean curd, like all three of us ordered broccoli and bean curd, but we ordered, we all ordered it in different ways. (laughs) And I I called them and I was like, okay, all right, let's talk about your tofu. And I was like, one home style, one sauce on the side, one steamed. And it was, it was so, it was so ridiculous. I felt like such a vegan just ordering tofu in three different ways. But in conclusion, the point is there's a Chinese place around the corner. Yeah. And it's good. And Chinese places are, of course, as we've known, well, I think they still are the mainstay for when you're traveling. You can almost always find a Chinese place that always has tofu. So I'm incredibly grateful to that cuisine. Oh, me too. Let's get on to the interview because I'm also incredibly grateful to you for doing this incredible interview with Henry Mance. And to- yeah, I, I, I get all the credit. Henry Henry was just a sideshow. Yeah. <laughs> 
Henry Mance is currently the chief features writer for the UK's Financial Times. What an interesting guest for us to have. Focusing on long form pieces, he was named interviewer of the year. Oh, did that make you nervous? (laughs) (laughs) He was named interviewer of the year at the 2017 British Press Awards and frequently appears on BBC radio and TV news programs. He has also appeared on CNN and PBS. His new book is How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. And Henry will be joining Marianne right after this. Jasmine here. We're so excited to announce the upcoming release of the groundbreaking new book, Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation, published by Lantern Books and Media. Inspired by Encompass's racial equity trainings, this collection of essays was written by farmed animal protection leaders, myself included, who are committed to exploring and prioritizing racial equity as we work to create a more effective and just animal protection movement. We wish to document our stories and processes in an exploratory space from which we can grow and use our words to hold ourselves and our peers accountable, ultimately creating new paths forward. I'm lucky enough to be the editor of the book. The only way to be an effective animal activist is to prioritize anti-racism within our advocacy. This essay collection will provide a new, necessary way forward. Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation is new as of September 2021 and is a collaboration between Our Hen House, Encompass, Sentient Media, and Lantern Books and Media. And we've got even more exciting news. Our Hen House is honored to roll out an audio series of the book, launching this October 2021. Narrated by the essay authors themselves, The four-part series will air every Thursday throughout October. This will be in addition to our regular podcast schedule, of course. We cannot wait to share it with you. To find out more about the book and to pre-order it, visit encompassmovement.org slash book. That's encompassmovement.org slash book. Welcome to our hen house, Henry. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to have you because I'm really excited about this book. I've never read a book quite like it because you you sort of come at this as an outsider, not like a person who's grown up in the movement or whatever, but you really go there on virtually every issue. And some of it's hard to read, but it's all, I mean, I learned a lot reading this book. And, you know, everyone, well, maybe not everyone, but almost everyone say they care about animals. And I think they're telling the truth. People do care about animals, but I think it's clear that people don't really like to be reminded of what that actually means. So why did you set out to write a book reminding people or attempting to remind people of exactly that, of of what it means to love animals? I think I started from the position that I've benefited so much from animals. You know, when I was a kid, I went to the zoo. I had My family had a pet dog. And then sort of in later life, I got into photography and, you know, the most amazing things to take photos are the most amazing subjects for photos are animals, you know, and I've been lucky enough to take photos of orangutans and parrots and other animals. And so I became sort of fixated on how they looked. And then I asked myself the question, well, what lies behind, you know, these amazing colors or these, you know, wonderful feathers, whatever it might be. And, and also, what am I doing to help these beings 
have a better life on the planet. You know, they, they are giving me such pleasure. What am I giving back? And so I think for lots of people, it's, it's not just one, one thing that changes their behavior, one, one single like road to Damascus moment. It's, it's much more like an accumulation of things. And that was certainly my experience that over, over years, I've sort of come closer to animals and I've drifted further away. Uh, I think there are years when, when you're a teenager where you're not surrounded by, you know, toys and cartoons in the way you were when you were younger, for example. But then really it came sort of rushing back. One, I read Yuval Noah Harari's Sapiens, which talks about, you know, the horrors of industrial agriculture. And it really got me thinking and it turned me vegetarian. And then I, I had kids and there was really this moment of, wow, animals are everywhere. And yet this vision of animals of like living in small, nice farms, as they do in picture books, of being happy in the world we've created, like lions and and tigers are in, in cartoons, that just doesn't exist. So then I really started asking, how can I bring up my kids to have an ethos of caring for animals? Because they give us so much pleasure. And they're also beings that feel pain, that have emotions, that have social lives. And my kids know all this because they're seeing it on TV and they're seeing it in their books. Yeah, it does bring up the question of whether anybody is listening. Do you think we are actually in a moment, a particular moment, where it is possible for people to make dramatic change? And that's one of the reasons it's very useful to have this book right now. I think the frustration of lots of people who have been involved in the animal rights movement, who have gone vegan, gone vegetarian, who have talked to their friends about this, is, of course, it's possible. You know, it's possible. We make a choice every time we have breakfast, every time we have lunch, every time we have dinner we make choices all throughout our lives about how to affect other other animals. So it's so possible to do better. Now, is society on the brink of some real change? I think yes. I think if had I been a vegan in 1985 or 1990, I think I would have, you know, struggled for motivation in those years, you know, where the products weren't being invested in, where restaurants didn't know what you, you needed, where people thought you were fringe and extreme and, you know, not worth taking seriously. And now I think there really is a moment where because of the climate crisis, because people are becoming more and more sensitized to animals because they love their pets, they love watching cat videos on the internet, there's a moment where this can reach a far wider audience. And I think our diet will have to shift. So I think like the the horrors of industrial farming are coming under question, not just amongst people who, who really care about this, but just about, you know, people who who care about their own pets. And that's, you know, that's half the population. That's two thirds of the population you've got as, as a sort of audience for animal rights messages. I think one of the most encouraging facts is that people care so much about their pets. They invest so much energy in them. You know, with, last year, Americans spent more than $100 billion for the first time on their pets, $100 billion. And you have obviously politicians now the first thing they do when they get into office, whether it's Joe Biden or Justin Trudeau or Boris Johnson in Britain, is adopt a, a dog because it shows you're a good person. So I really feel if we can use that energy, that, that, that conscience that people put into their pets and then sort of broaden that out to all types of sentient beings, then I think we have a real opportunity to change how we treat animals. This is a hugely important reminder for me because I am, well, I wasn't vegan in the 80s, but I was vegan in the 90s. And, and we've been doing this for a long time. Sometimes you do miss those cues that that there's a shift. And, you know, the frustration has kind of been building and, and 
and you do see that there are changes. But this idea of of you like saying this might be the a, a different moment, and we have to treat this differently, I think is an inspiration for a lot of people who have actually been doing this for a while. And you know, it it can get a little despairing <laughs> after a while. And I just this is apropos of nothing, but I just want to point out Donald Trump never adopted a dog. Uh, he so. was the one exception amongst both. It was incredible. <laughs> I mean, that was a sign. If we did, we didn't need any other signs, did we? Um, but I see. I mean, Tucker Carlson on on Fox. I mean, I think this is a, it, one of the things that amazes me is that you really have people of all persuasions who who love animals. I mean, one of the reasons that the book is called How to Love Animals is because I just saw people using this phrase as like a verbal tick, as like a default thing. I love animals, and Tucker Carlson on Fox interviewing uh, vegan activist Jean Bauer, who said, you know, I love animals. I, I'm uncomfortable with factory farming. And I think that's, you know, now look, there may be lots of other things to object to about him, but I think it does it does strike at a truth, which is to love animals has become part of being a good human being. And if that's the case, then how can we accept farms? You know, eventually the cognitive dissonance will become too much and we will react against them and society will progress. Yeah, well, this is the question that that we all ask ourselves all the time. Like, how? I mean, I ask every single person I interview, how is it that people who who love animals don't change? Like, how is that? My own answer to that is that people don't know, that the dairy industry was a revelation to me as someone who went vegetarian and then ate a lot of cheese, because that's what you do when you're a vegetarian in restaurants is you order cheese. And, you know, when you're vegetarian at home, you you cook with cheese. So the dairy industry almost being more invasive and more confining than than many meat farms. I mean, I think that was a real revelation. So I think there is a lack of knowledge. And then there is always the, well, look, I can get away with it. You know, nobody's, nobody's really calling me out. My friends aren't really calling me out for eating dairy. You know, my friends call me out for, for you know, driving under the influence or, or whatever, but they don't call me out for eating dairy. And I, I just think that that's why behavior change is so important because Every vegan friend that someone has is is kind of getting into their mind. It's just raising the question for them, and they they won't change overnight. And that's frustrating. If you're if you're a vegan, you you don't understand why a lot of other people don't see see the world in the same way. But I think you are planting a seed in people's minds. And if they come around to your house and they eat vegan food and they see that it's nice and, and delicious, then there is every chance that they will go away and cook it more themselves and just and just be open to those questions. And I think that's. That's all we can hope for at this moment. But I, I certainly feel that change is happening much, much faster than it was 10 years ago. And I, I think social media is a big part of that. Yeah, and I think that y- you being in the UK, that's that's even stronger because we all know the vegan movement has taken off there more than it has here. You know, there's really been a lot of talk of late on social media and elsewhere about the comparative value of individual action, such as veganism versus working for institutional change. I mean, you see this both in animal rights and climate change and and whatever, that, you know, a lot of people think that this is such a huge systemic issue that that for them to go vegan, which would be a huge sacrifice, it's not going to make any difference. And there's a lot of validity to that. I mean, when you're talking about huge, huge issues, one person's actions don't really matter in and of themselves so much. But you say that by giving in the book, by giving up animal products as individuals, people create space for governments to act. So how do you see that happening? Like, is this a, a, like, is this a principle of how you see social change happening, this person-to-person change? Marianne, I'm so glad you picked up on that because that really is, 
part of the book and it's something that has become clearer in my mind since then. And I, I agree with you, it's become, it's become this bitter topic of debate. I, you know, I tweeted out the other day, just after watching some pictures of wildfires, I think, in, in the Western United States, I, I tweeted out, look, if you feel powerless by this, make some changes, you know, don't fly, change your diet and, you know, look for an electric car or something along those lines. And the amount of people saying that's rubbish, that's never going to change anything. Let me just briefly explain why I see the world differently. I mean, firstly, when it comes to meat, it's impossible for any politician, uh, even a vegan politician, to propose and get support for a tax on meat at the moment. And that's because you you have only 5% of the population or fewer who are opting out of meat. And so 95% of them see it as a population, see it as a sort of assault on them. And until you build up that 5% to 20% to 25%, then it's really difficult for the other tools to come into play. And I would, I would compare it to smoking, which was never as popular as meat eating. But it was only really when a lot of people had opted out of, of smoking that the real taxes could come in, that the banning of smoking in public places could come in. And so that individual change does give signals. I mean, the other thing I would say is that, you know, individuals who are vegan change the world. I mean, look at Impossible Foods or Beyond Meat. They're run by vegans. They're people who who have then gone out and made products which are not aimed at, at vegans. But, you know, would their own personal choices have led in their careers to huge, huge change? So I, I, I think that's another route in which it happens. And thirdly, you know, in part of the book, I went out on a, on a protest with a group called Animal Rebellion, who are an offshoot of Extinction Rebellion, the big anti-climate uh, change uh, movement. And I've never seen any group so focused both on political change and on upholding those values in their own behavior. So the group, we were camping out firstly in a meat market in London and then a fish market and, you know, targeting various places that were connected with factory farming. And they were receiving food donations from the public. And there was a real debate about whether they should accept non-vegan donations from the public. So people coming along trying to, you know, sympathetic, but just giving non-vegan food. And and they said, look, we just don't want to receive these non-vegan items. So they were really strict with themselves. But then they were absolutely focused on political change. They were absolutely focused on making the most amount of noise on the streets of London. And that, for me, underlined that there isn't a contradiction. It isn't a distraction. I think if you change yourself, you're then in a in a good position to go out and, and influence others. And I really believe there is this effect whereby if you can show that veganism is a normal, healthy, fun lifestyle, then you're the best possible ambassador for it. And you're, you're the person who will persuade other people. And as someone who hasn't always been vegan and has probably probably at one stage saw, saw vegan as slightly odd. And, and, you know, I really feel that it's important for it to be normalized. It's not about being extreme. It's about, you know, it's about caring for this planet, caring for the creatures on it. It's a logical choice. I really, for me, I think we just need to, there are a lot of people out there who see it as just the furthest point on the spectrum. And that's just not where it is. It's really right there in the center of what a sustainable, ethical lifestyle looks like. So, yeah, I, 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 I feel that personal choice is, is really the first step. Yeah, I, well, obviously, I couldn't agree more. That's, that's cause I've been vegan for a long time. But I've heard people say so, so often that you just think all vegans are crazy until all of a sudden you are one. And, um, <laughs> yeah. and then your whole point of view kind of 
has to shift. My wife said that veganism um, would, when I was a vegetarian, my wife said veganism is divorceable. I'm sorry, but veganism is divorceable. <laughs> and then when, um, when I went vegan, she, uh, she happily changed her mind and we're still married. So, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I'm la- I was laughing, but then I thought maybe I should make sure you're not divorced <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> before I make fun of that. So one of the things you mentioned was how hard it would be to get a meat tax. But And I thought it was interesting that you suggested, at least, at least at this moment in time, it makes more sense politically to seek the subsidies for plant-based foods than to just fight against animal-based foods. That was an interesting idea for me. Do you think that that idea has traction? Yeah, I really do. I think, you know, in various European uh, countries, people have proposed meat taxes because they're like meat taxes are entirely logical. If you're an economist, it makes all sorts of sense. You know, take the animal welfare point out of it. I mean, just on a carbon emissions point, you know, you tax gasoline. Why aren't you taxing meat, which has huge carbon emissions associated with it? But uh, yeah, I think that's too obvious to people. And people would see that as too much as an attack on values. It would become part of the culture war. I think it's the time is not quite ready. But I think if you either take money out, so you stop subsidizing some forms of meat production, but you do it, you know, you do it upstream, so people aren't quite, aren't so directly affected by it. Or you, I think easier than that still is just to pump money in to alternative proteins. And, you know, it's it's great that it's a great that Big companies are investing, but we know that, well, I feel that plant-based cheese is not quite there yet and certainly doesn't appeal to non-vegans very much. I mean, I think the beef burgers are basically there, but there's still loads of room for development. And I think that's where money could be really well spent. And I also think that, you know, in places like schools, which have become used to serving meat and it's because of the, the economies of scale, it's very cheap for them to do so. If you could just add a bit of money to make vegetables and plant-based foods a bigger part of their offering, then that would have a huge impact. I'm not sure why we're raising kids to eat as much meat as our generations have when we know that that's unsustainable. And we know that you know the, the cost of doing that on the animals' lives and on our planet is unthinkable, really, to continue. We just don't have the land if, if as much as anything else to eat as much meat. And yet, we take kids to school and we expect them to eat meat as often as we do. It's, it's, it's ludicrous. So some money there to subsidize healthy plant-based foods, I think would go a long way. In, and because taste is so cultural, it's shaped at that young age. At the moment, we're shaping it wrongly. Yeah, no, I think there's, if if we could get public money into the production of, of plant-based substitutes, it would be a game changer. Now, of course, there are some political issues involved there. And speaking of which, like how not just politically, but in general, how do you get, I mean, you set out to write this book and it was a big project. And obviously you went, you had to witness things that I'm sure haunt you to this day. You had to find out things that nobody wants to know in order to write this book. You had to meet a lot of people who you probably disagreed with. And it was a huge project. How do you get the right people to read it? It's a great question. I feel the U- I mean, the UK, as you said, has been at the forefront of, of some animal rights thinking for, you know, over 200 years. You know, we had a ban on, on some cruelty back in the, you know, 1822. We had the Society of Prevention for Cruelty to Animals, which was then, you know, imitated worldwide. And now I, it's great to see that some of that heritage is still here. And I feel like in my own friends who, who yeah, are college educated, they're probably, a, you know, not representative of society. But that there is a, a real openness. You know, we've had veganuary, which is giving up 
animal products for, for January. It's gone really well here. And I feel that the people I want to read it are this 20 or 30% of people who are cutting down on meat or say they're cutting down. And what I want them to realize is that cutting down on meat does not mean, you know, one fewer meat meal a, a week. It really means something more significant than that. Because like, I mean, I say in the book that I think it's very hard to eat. To, to, you know, even if you want to eat good meat, that's pretty much a contradiction in terms. So, you know, you know, I'd say I'm going vegan. But I understand that some people want, you know, there's some meat that they're happy with. But what I want to make them realize is that most of the meat they eat does not fulfill their own idea of what meat should be and how animals should live. And so I would love them to realize that cutting down on meat, the first step is not to give up 5% of the meat they eat, but to give up more than 50%. And, and I think that's, I, I'm really focused on trying to build that 20, 30% of the population that is opting out of meat. And then, because that's when I really think you can start bringing in public policy, you can start changing the way we eat. When it becomes the default, when you send your kids to school and they have to opt into eating meat, I mean, that will be, that will be great. You know, that would be a real progress for me. And when, you know, you go to a restaurant and as happens here, three or four of the options are vegan. And like, maybe there's one or two, two meat options. For, for people. But I think that would make a huge difference. So I, you know, I go around, I talk to people, I appear on podcasts like this, I tweet about it. And I try and find, I try not to be too shocking with some of the imagery I use. You know, I know that there, is, there are videos out there from farms, which are horrific, and which every time I see them, they make my blood boil. And I've seen some things which I know when, when I've written about them, people find them hard to read. And so I, I don't always feel that that's the best approach. I just try and throw in little reminders of what the dairy industry involved or little reminders of just how many birds on this planet are chickens. I mean, most of them are chickens. I mean, it's incredible. If you're, you're reincarnated as a bird on this planet, it odds on you are a chicken. I mean, that's, that's, that's crazy. What are, what are we doing? We're reshaping this, this world to suit our appetites and not caring whether those those animals have any quality of life or even bred in a, in a way that they can support their own bodies. I mean, it's ludicrous. So, but I think there's only so much of that that my audience can perhaps handle. And I hope the book is, the book in, includes lots of attempts at jokes. You can judge whether they're funny yourself and whether they're true. To the, they are very uh, funny. I can assure everybody. <laughs> I wasn't Every single one of them. I promise. Right. But um, <laughs> I've tried, so I've tried to make it as soft as possible. And, I think you can you can bite people occasionally with reality, but you also need to, you know, offer them this better vision of of where we're heading. And for me, that that vision is tasty food, healthy food, connecting with your food, feeling happy about your food, feeling that your food aligns with your values, like loving your pet. You know, you can love your pet and and eat dinner, and you don't feel you don't feel like you're you're going through some huge headache when you do that. And then it's a world of like much richer landscapes of. You know, we, I have foxes who trot past my, my home in London. I love that. And, but I think, you know, our wild spaces are very few and far between. And we need to find ways of restoring forests and wetlands and grasslands. And so that, but I think veganism allows all that because it requires just so much less land. So it's a, it's a sort of positive vision I think you have to sell as well. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I didn't want to leave people with the impression that this book is just about veganism and, and factory farming because that is an important part of it and kind of the the first part of it. But you cover all the issues. Well, maybe not every single one of them, but almost all of them. I mean, as you talk a lot about wildlife. You talk a lot about zoos. Zoos are a particularly interesting topic. I hadn't really thought of it in those terms, but you talked about how you went to zoos when you were a child. And it, 
people who kids who love animals want to go to the zoo. I mean, zoos are, zoos are very connected to loving animals. And I think one of the things your book does is kind of turn that phrase around of loving at what does it actually mean to love animals and some of the ideas of what we have particularly from our childhood about what it means to love animals are perhaps not entirely loving when it comes down to it so let's talk a little bit about those issues too and not spend the entire time on veganism and is that one of the reasons you picked zoos because it does symbolize for you loving animals and you you say if this is love it is the clumsiest variety what do you mean by that i think you know we got lots of people with good intentions and I think they're misdirected and I think zoos are a perfect example of that that you want to teach your kids about animals so you take them to the zoo and in fact what you're teaching them is that a giraffe is fine on a hard floor in a small enclosure in a climate which they have not evolved for and that's clearly wrong I mean then uh, when I went to the zoo when I was younger I think there was a polar bear in, in the middle of London, there were certainly elephants there who were chained up quite regularly. And I look back on videos, I was watching a documentary of London Zoo. I mean, it's horrific. You know, I like, I, I, kids should not be watching this stuff, should not have seen it. But I mean, I think now you realize just those spaces are inappropriate for particularly large animals that m- migrate large distances. And for me, it was really eye-opening to read the history of zoos and to understand that when they were created and the first European zoos were at the beginning of the 19th century, that they weren't there to help conservation. They weren't there to help the animals, certainly. They were there to satisfy our human curiosity and to give a sense of our dominance over the animal world and to allow people to do some sort of slightly scientific research, although that that was never really, at the beginning, the, the forefront of it. And so you, you, if you wanted to create a, a, a place some kind of arc to save animals and to give them good quality of life. You just would not build the zoos that we have today. And I think that is a, a really important thing for people to notice and to make clear that the zoos we have are, are, are sort of outdated institutions and they need to they need to reform. And I, I have a problem with taking my kids because everything you do with their, your kids shapes their expectations. I mean, if you feed them meat, you shape their expectations that they should have meat. If you take them to the zoo, you shape their expectation that they should be able to see those animals. And I found much more joy in showing my kids wild animals in the spaces to which they're adapted. And we're lucky enough to have a small pond in our garden. And normally we get tadpoles and froglets and frogs. And my kids absolutely love them. And I think it's often the parents who are saying, you need to see this tiger. Because kids kids are adaptable. They love lots of things. My kids love bumblebees. And I think we have built this expectation that you can see lions and elephants in a city center or in a very small city zoo. And that's clearly not good for the animals, but it's clearly, for me, not necessary for the kids either. They need to see wild animals being part of ecosystems, being part of natural spaces, and they can't do that in zoos. Yeah, I I think they learn the wrong thing, that those animals exist for them. This is a little uh, provocative quote, but one of my favorite animal rights activists ever, Jim Mason, who wrote the wonderful book, An Unnatural Order, years ago, I once heard him say, teaching children about animals by taking them to the zoo is like teaching them about sex by reading them pornography. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, it's this, uh, yeah. It's a, there is something resonant about that, isn't there? It's so reductive. Um... That's really, uh, yeah, I'm going to think about that one. I, um, yeah, I, I, I really hope that zoos have the boldness to change. I mean, the problem, the part of the problem is they have a lot of animals now who are going to live decades and so need to be kept well. And so 
before we think about abolishing zoos or changing zoos radically, firstly, those animals that are there have to be treated well. You know, like Happy at Bronx Zoo, an elephant who's been on her own for far too long, she needs to be treated well. You know, she should be taken to a reserve with plenty of space with other animals to, uh, to live out her remaining years. And that's going to be expensive for a lot of zoos. But, I, you know, there's a lot of breeding that goes on that should not be a lot of shipping of animals around the world in stressful conditions. And I just think zoo managers should have the the conscience to say, look, this isn't what we're here for. We need to focus on those smaller animals whose welfare is well protected in zoos, who need to be reintroduced to the world and can be reintroduced to the world. And most of all, we need to focus on protecting wild spaces. So, you know, that's what's going to save the elephants. That's what's going to save the tigers. And it's what has been pretty good for tiger numbers in India is, you know, paying local communities, protecting areas. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter that there are tigers in cages in Texas. That doesn't help at all. The, por- the pornography quote definitely resonates to me because there's a lot of unhappiness behind these zoos. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not saying that pornography is a terrible thing, but it's <laughs> yeah, just right. not. <laughs> you know, it's not the most beautiful, natural way to uh, tell tell children what 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 things are about. You know, we can't go into every detail, but I just want people to know that you really break this down a lot. I mean, for people who want information about like how zoos operate, what the finances are, what the incentives are, this book is really, really valuable and pointing out to some extent, I'm not sure you would use this word, but you know, there's a scam going on. Like people, zoos are protect, pretending, oh God, you use this quote. I loved it so much. You know, they pretend to be the ark. And I think it was Carl Safina that you quoted. I had not heard this quote, quote before. Maybe we are not Noah. Maybe we are the flood. Oh God, I love yeah, that quote. I, I loved, I, um, I was toying around with this ark metaphor and then I heard Carl's speak and he, he said it and I thought that is it. You know, we, we have this kind of savior complex that we need to intervene and alter all these animals' lives. And in fact, no, we just need to leave some space alone, really. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, a scam is a hard word. What I, what I would think is that zoos are filled with animal lovers, you know, people who work there, and they've got, they've got themselves into a trap and they don't quite know how to escape. They've got all these captive animals, they've got visitors who expect things, and they've built a tradition upon it, and they just need to break free. And I think some of them have started, like Ron Kagan at Detroit Zoo, who I interview is clearly someone who's very uncomfortable with the way that most American zoos operate. And he's on the fringes and it's been pretty bruising for him. And, you know, his zoo isn't perfect, but it's a lot better to say we can't keep elephants in Detroit, in Detroit of all places. I mean, like, if, you know, if elephants could choose their holiday de- destinations, I'm sure they would not choose to go to a cold <laughs> climate in winter. It's so, a very chilly city, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I just think we, certainly kids, I think, are, are given the impression that this is inevitable that animals are kept in. My daughters see pictures in their books of zoos as like the place was, and they think that that's where animals come from. And it's like, no, obviously not. You know, it's, it's a place we put animals and where they, they, they don't belong and to which they're not adapted. And yeah, I hope that changes. I hope you're right. And I hope that it is. And, and you know, I think you make a good point, and it's a generous point that they're kind of in this world. And how do you get out of it when you have all these animals? But I just want to point out, I was part of the New York City Bar Association's Animal Law Committee. I think this was in the '90s, a long time ago, and we did a pro, a full day program on zoos. And the two speakers that we were able to get who were really outspoken about zoos were Ron Kagan and David Hancock, who are the people you oh, quote. So I'm not, sure, uh, I'm not sure that that community has grown that much in all those years. I think that's right. I mean, like we were saying a meat tax is unpopular. And it's actually right that going for zoos that people love, that people associate with it. But it's interesting. I spoke to people my age, and some of them had young kids and some of them didn't. And they said that going to a zoo as an adult 
they felt slightly uncomfortable. They didn't know why. And that was certainly my experience of like, oh, I know, let's go for a fun day out. We've got a free Saturday. Let's go down to the zoo. And you'd be there and you'd be like, what isn't, what aren't I experiencing? And I think it really takes a while for your mind to adjust to what is wrong with zoos. Like it doesn't happen. For me, it, it isn't like walking in and saying, this is a prison. It's walking in and saying, something's not natural here. The animals aren't running around. The animals aren't, aren't uh, alive in the way they should be. Ah, right. I understand. So, so I'm, I'm, yeah, I wouldn't, if I had, if I had, uh, uh, you know, a hundred dollars to spend on a campaign, I would spend it on factory farming rather than ending zoos. But I think it's important to make the point. And I think the reason why I try and tackle all these issues in the book from pets to zoos to hunting to conservation and, and meat is because part of our problem is that we've divided animals into categories. We've said, you know, cows are meant to be farmed or, you know, that's what we implicitly say to each other. So they don't have the same feelings as our cats or they don't have the same capacity for pain as our dogs. And I think what we need to do is to think about animals as a whole. And if we think about, right, this is this is a mammal like our dog. This will have the desire to form social relationships, the desire to be played with as an animal. Then then I think that's when we that's when we start really um, progressing. I, I just said it for an animal, which I tried really hard not to do in the book. And I hope I... <laughs> I hope I achieved in the book to always say he, she, and them. We all but, try, so, and every once in a while we all slip. So well, uh, yeah. thank you for understanding. No, I think it's <laughs> I think it's really important because people would never say it about their 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 dog or cat. Right, but then it's become so confused by the whole question of pronouns among humans, which what you should use and when to be. So it's all become very very complicated. Part of the most impactful and I have to say depressing or frightening parts of the book is talking about the wild. And you alluded to the issues about the wild and how that's what we really have to support. But what is the best we can hope for vis-a-vis, quote unquote, the wild? What do we even mean by that anymore? And what what is it going to come to mean? I mean, this is a difficult time in history. Unfortunately, it's likely that times going forward are going to be even more difficult when it comes to when it comes to the earth and the wild. So do some predictions for us. And you can even do a best case scenario. Given what we've done to the planet so far, what is the best we can do to preserve something of the wild? And what does that mean? Yeah, when I started out the book, this is one of the things I was thinking about. What what world will my, will my kids have? And I think certainly, even on a best case scenario, they will not have the knowledge that you know, lions and elephants have the spaces that they do. I mean, the wild spaces are going to continue to disappear around the world. And that's true of the Amazon. It's true of the savannah in Africa. It's true of rainforests in Indonesia. I think that's immensely sad because, you know, we complicate conservation. We talk about lots of things threaten wild animals, obviously. But fundamentally, it's about space. If wild animals have space, then they can survive. And, you know, there are hunting pressures and other things, but without space, you can't do anything. And I support this idea that 50% of the planet should be given over to wild spaces. And that would, you know, save a lot of animals from extinction. That's a, that's a huge ask. And I think we're just, even on a best case scenario, forests are going to continue to be uh, cut down. I mean, sub-Saharan Africa, we're talking about, you know, another billion people there. Uh, you know, those people have to go somewhere. They have to, they will get richer. They will start, you know, building homes, they will start demanding meat, etc. And having all the same ambitions around life that, that we have. And so I think even on a best case scenario, on a world level, 
then we will see many extinctions and the diminishing of many animal populations. And this, I think this sense we have that wild animals are out there, that it's okay, that there are spaces where they live, I think that will become ever harder to, to hold on to, that they will be in mu- much more limited spaces for those large animals. And that's why I think, you know, I live in a country which has, Britain has a, a forest cover of about 10%, which is pathetic. And we are aiming to, ha- to have 30% natural habitat by, by 2030. And we are in a position where we're looking to take some of these unprofitable farms in hills in, in Wales and in Northern England and to turn them into nature reserves. And I'm really supportive of that. And I think that, you know, if countries like ours, it doesn't really offset what's happening in the Amazon. It doesn't really offset what's happening in Kenya or other parts of Sub-Saharan Africa. But I think it's a start, is to start restoring nature and forest cover across Europe has grown. And I, I, you know, we can start talking about reintroducing some wild animals here. We don't have any uh, predator of of deer here. So we don't have any lynx or bears or wolves. Wolves are spreading across Europe as they're spreading across America. Um, But they they haven't made the United Kingdom. So I, I feel that that's the, for now, the message of hope has to be that in some parts of the world, we can restore nature and we don't need the farmland that we've had, especially as we move across meat. But I really think that, that we should be buying land, protecting land, as you know, the Tompkins have done. And I write about Doug and Tompkins and his effort, that, you know, his effort in Chile and Argentina. You know, for me, there's nothing more wonderful if you have hundreds of millions of dollars. And I know most people listening to this will not, and I certainly don't. But like, it's, it's so depressing for me that more billionaires don't spend their money restoring wild spaces. They're going, they want to go up in rockets and the, really they want to buy expensive art. But the most difference you can make to this natural world is to buy wild spaces, to restore ecosystems. And that will, that will give a heritage far greater than any business you create. The way you're talking about it almost reminds me of what you said before about veganism in that we have to take those small personal actions in order to motivate what is really needed, which is huge systemic actions. But I don't know whether any of us can do anything to motivate Jeff Bezos to try to save the planet instead of going into outer space. They're all going into outer space. They're like, they ruined it here and now they're all going into outer space. So you obviously wrote this when COVID had started and you were able to incorporate some of that information into the book, which was really that was very fortunate that you were able to do that because it really makes the book feel extremely timely. But, you know, COVID keeps going and the prospect of, of um, sadly, uh, the prospect of more COVIDs keep going. So have you seen any signs of, as you put it in the book, the hope that what endures is humility towards the natural world? Have you seen any effect from this pandemic? Because I got to admit, I, you know, I've been doing this too long and I'm too dark, but I am not seeing a lot. You know what? I kind of agree with you. I think had it been like a two-month pandemic, had everything shut down, you know, all air travel, everyone stayed at home, and then you know suddenly it had disappeared, would reached herd immunity, or a vaccine had happened and magically appeared in in everyone's arms, and no one had thought the vaccine was a threat. But you know, we'd been able to go back to to, to normal after two months. Then I think you know maybe people would have said, "Wow, that was interesting. Maybe we should change a few things." But it's been such a disruptive eighteen months that I think people are tired of change and they're, they're tired of hard problems. And I think it's really set back ambitions on biodiversity 
and on climate change, both of which have the potential to really make us rethink how we treat animals. And so, you know, the big conferences on climate change and biodiversity were postponed from last year. And I just feel a bit of exhaustion, really, amongst politicians and amongst individuals. And of course, you meet people who have changed their life for the better. You know, people have gone out and decided they don't need to work as as hard or they don't care so much about money or they, um, you know, have decided to to cook differently, um, whatever. But I, I think overall, as a society, we haven't had that moment of elation. Now, I think, look, the glass is, is half full, too, in that people were talking about, we're going to have the roaring 20s again, we're going to fall into debauchery, and, you know, everyone's going to go mad and selfish and stock market boom. I don't think that's going to happen either. But I think change is going to be really hard. And I think the lessons of this, which are, you know, wherever this disease came from, and it, you know, I, I don't know, but wherever it came from, similar diseases will continue to come from factory farms, and they will continue to come from destroying wild spaces. So let's not do those things. And when we have a disruption like this, the cost on, you know, the way in which animals were treated, you know, the way in which farmers, you know, killed their pigs by just allowing them to to boil alive. I mean, it's frankly horrific. And it frankly exposes the just the lack of care and the lack of conscience at the heart of the factory farming industry. Those realizations, I think, will take a while to work through. You know, I would love everyone to sit down and rethink the way we live because I think we need to. Um, And, you know, that seems to me not the way that society works. But, you know, change happens. And I think I I grab on to the fact that the younger generation is just far more interested in, in veganism than, you know, my contemporaries ever were. And I, you know, I hold on to the fact that it's just unsustainable. You know, it's, you can't keep cutting down forests the way we are. And we can't, we can't continue to watch pictures of wildfires and floods. You know, in, in London has flooded twice in the past month, you know, it's, it's in ways that people just cannot imagine having happened 10 years ago. And so I really think there will be a, a rethink. But yes, it isn't the simple switch that, you know, it hasn't provoked us, coronavirus hasn't provoked us to immediately switch. I think we're just exhausted. Yeah, I, I and actually because I'm coming from such a dark place that actually seems kind of hopeful to me because I think so many people who have woken up to something just expect to be able to give people information and have them make the same reaction. But that's within most people. The fact that they don't immediately react to something does not mean it has not had an impact on them. And and as you say, the, the lessons of COVID, or I think you said something like this, the lessons of COVID might take time to kind of sink in, but it doesn't mean they won't have any impact at all. I don't want to leave you on such a dark note. So my final question kind of like relates to that. And I think one of the things you bring to the book, which is so valuable, is is your kids. You have daughters and and you t- you bring them in occasionally just as kind of examples of, of what it takes to get this message across and how children react to these things. And of course, we children are incredibly important. They they love animals, but their love of animals can quickly become just as odd as adults' love of animals, not in the real world. So one of your prescriptions at the end of the book, you give a list of prescriptions. They're brief. They're not difficult. But one of them is to tell kids the truth, which seems like a pretty benign thing to say. But kids are never told the truth about what happens to animals. It's, It's actually considered too horrible to tell them the truth, and it would be too horrible to tell them all the truth. So what do you tell them? And when do you tell them? Yeah. And I really like the link actually you made, because for me, having kids is a bit like, you know, it's in a way it's a, 
at a micro scale, it's a bit like the pandemic, that you're so exhausted from all these changes that you sometimes, you know, you forget to pause. But for me, becoming a parent is a real chance to reflect on what you're reproducing unthinkingly about your own life and whether you want that to to be reproduced. And, you know, I think it's a, if you can get, you know, get away from all the nappies and, you know, tidy away the toys and just take a moment and pause and say, what are my kids learning? Then, you know, really seize those early years because they're when your children are, are just waiting to, to learn from you. And if you, if you open your mind, I think you can really make such a difference in those years. I tell them they're vegetarian and that they're mostly, they mostly eat vegan food and that they don't, they eat some, eat some dairy. And I I tell them why we don't why we don't eat meat, and they are totally happy with that, and they totally buy into that. And I of course I I'm ready for a stage when they they don't they will say oh I want to try what what chicken tastes like, but at the moment they really say you know we love animals and we want to help this ladybird get off the path, or we don't want to eat chicken, we don't want to eat fish, and that you know hasn't been a battle. I think lots of parents worry that it's going to be a battle that eating vegetables will be a battle. Uh, etc. And I haven't found it that way. I think if you eat what your kids are eating, and you're eating vegetables, then a lot of the problem might go away. Now, I know I, I wouldn't lecture parents on what to do, because, you know, every kid's different. And it's a struggle for, in so many ways, those early years. But I, I would really encourage people to be bold, if they can. And also just to say, look, the reason I don't buy endless stuff for my kids is because that stuff has to come from somewhere, and it involves some impact. And, you know, we don't need to do that. So, you know, when I give them secondhand things, things bought from secondhand shops, or when I say we're not going to buy that, I try to explain that, you know, there's a reason that, you know, you can't have everything and that we, you know, we love the earth. And I sort of, I feel at this age, they're five and three at the moment, they really understand that and that they're proud of that. And I really see this weird love they have for Peppa Pig and, you know, other Disney characters who appear on their TV. I, I just trying to filter that through to their daily actions. And I think that is possible. And I think that there's nothing happier for me than not when I point out an animal to them, but when they point out an animal to me, I really feel that they're catching onto it at a young age. We keep a cat, we have kept chickens. And I, I think that if you can bring your children close to the animal world and give them responsibility, of course, they make mistakes. Of course, they chase pigeons in the park or whatever it might be. But you're, you're teaching a love that will endure for their lifetime. Yeah, that incredibly important lesson. And since they're going to live in a tough world, no doubt about it, it's just something that all kids really need to incorporate. So I, I have about a million more questions, but but people will have to buy the book to um, get answers to them. And, and even if you feel, I, I just want to say to people, even if you feel, you know, you're already on board, this is the great book for people who you know, who might be almost there. I mean, people who aren't there at all, they're not going to read it. It would be hard to get them to read it. But exactly that that 20, 30% of people who are more curious and want to know, because one of the things about this book that I think is very valuable is that you don't come at it as an animal rights insider. There's almost a sense of discovery that you were discovering things and you're sharing that with people. And uh, so it doesn't feel preachy in that way. So I think it's an incredibly valuable book for that. It's How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. And thank you so much for joining us today to talk about it. It's been great, Henry. Marianne, thanks for all the great questions. And it was a pleasure to share this with you. Hi, friends. Jasmine here with some news and some gratitude for you. 
I hope you've been enjoying the Our Hen House podcast lately. And for those of you in the flock, I hope you've been enjoying your added weekly bonus material and other flock perks. In the spirit of sharing things we're learning, I wanted to let you know about my new newsletter. It's called Jasmine's Jargon, and it's an upfront look at the many moving parts of my life as they relate to activism, veganism, writing, time management, and how I do my best to stay calm or to try to stay calm. Each newsletter offers ideas, resources, and tools to help anyone who's interested in getting a bit more organized and focused do just that. I also, of course, cover topics relating to our hen house quite often, including what I'm learning from guests and cue the man behind the curtain, what tools we're using, everything from editing to communication to keep our nonprofit thriving and our podcast thought-provoking and relevant. Since I also wear a few other hats in the vegan world and beyond, I also include the down low about which projects inspire, motivate, and challenge my efforts to change the world for animals. If you'd like to join, and I hope you would like to join, you can sign up for free at jasminesinger.substack.com. And there's no E on Jasmine. So it's J-A-S-M-I-N-S-I-N-G-E-R dot substack dot com. Thank you so much for being here on this journey with me and for listening to the Our Hen House podcast and the Animal Law podcast. We couldn't do what we do without you, our community. And for that, we are so beyond grateful. Anxiety surprising. Our first story is from Meeting Place today, and it's the center of my plate column by Lisa M. Keefe. And she starts off by kind of throwing her 20-year-old daughter under the bus by talking about how she won't get a job in food service because she doesn't like it. And it's amazing how often these people write about their kids in disparaging ways. But okay. And then uh, she goes on to talk about how there really are problems in the restaurant industry, which is what she was encouraging her daughter to look for. And and there are reports that there's emotional abuse. 15% said they didn't want to uh, work in food service because they'd been sexually harassed. 15% uh, of another said they'd been sexually harassed by customers. Um, the pay is up, but it, it just isn't enough. And then she goes on to talk about why is this a question for meat processors. And she says, because they've been dealing with a labor shortage for decades and increased pay hasn't solved it. Now, first, I want to take a step back and say they haven't increased the pay that much. Uh, they think they, you know, these people are making a lot more money than anybody working in the in, in the plants. But she does acknowledge that this is not a COVID issue. It's not because people are getting unemployment. This has been going on for a long time. And she points out that the industry's way of finding a solution for this is to just find employees who have no other options. So, you know, they've looked for immigrants, you know, whether uh, with with real papers or fake papers, uh, but perhaps who can't speak English. And and uh, they, they've gone to rural areas that are really, really poor, and there are no other employers nearby. She points out that they are hiring prisoners. I don't think you hire prisoners. I think you contract for prisoners. And ex-cons, uh, you know, which, you know, that is a group of people who find it hard to find other kinds of work. 
and points out that the industry, and this is really infuriating, are, quote, increasingly looking to use temporary foreign workers on H-2B visas to plug the holes. That's the kind of visa that has been available to farmers who need people to come in and and pick crops when the crops are ready. I'm not saying there's anything good about H-2B visas, but to extend them to a completely non-seasonal employment atmosphere like a slaughterhouse is just an outrage, just because they, they can't find Americans to do this work. All right, so uh, she points out that surveys of working conditions in meat plants uh, are very problematic, and just like some of the surveys for the restaurant industry, Quote, poor treatment by supervisors and managers, sexual and racist harassment, punishing schedules, lack of child care and promotional opportunities, and just simply lack of a decent work environment. And she says it's not about pay. And at least she does say, although that's part of it. But my experience has been that employment is usually about pay. But she says, this is the kicker. It's providing work with meaning and is a source of pride. Uh, we're talking about work at a slaughterhouse. It's, you know, it's pretty challenging. Not once in this entire article does she point out that uh, slaughterhouse workers live in and work in hell, and they have to destroy animals' lives and and deal with misery and blood and guts all day long. There's no amount of money or or working conditions that's going to make that okay. Uh, she says meat companies are still relying on employees who have few and now dwindling alternatives in parts of the country that have been hard hit economically by the pandemic. You know, my guess would be is that that's who they're going to keep relying on. All right, our second story for today is also from Meeting Place. This is from our favorite Hannah Thompson Weeman, who writes about uh, who writes the Animal Ag Watch column. The title of her column is "Virtual Animal Rights Conferences Continue to Center on Animal Ag." And she does really, one of the ways she you know she has to write something like fairly frequently. And one of the ways she does it is she listens to online conferences and talks about them. And she's talking now about the 2021 Farmed Animal Conference eSummit. I don't see why it's surprising that a farmed animal conference would focus on animal ag, but uh, whatever. And she says, quote, when there is a fervent, aggressive, and strategic movement to end your industry, no matter how small a number it actually is. <laughs> I already love this. It's, it's huge, it's dangerous, and it's very tiny. Someone has to keep an eye on them. While it can be frustrating and probably not great for our blood pressure, we're glad to play that role. She means her. So you can focus on what's truly important, the critical business of feeding people. Uh, and then she has a whole bunch of quotes that she took from this conference, all of which I love. I'm just going to read them for you so you can have an idea what makes what makes these people uh, miserable. Quote, we must challenge the ridiculous notion of human supremacy. All we are is different, and the differences never, ever justify the prejudice. Wow, that's a great quote. She doesn't say who, there, who said them. Quote, we are opposed to any exploitation of animals, not just bigger cages, no cages, not just less domination, but no dominating, not just making sure they are anesthetized before being killed or for a shoe or a steak, but not being killed for either. Yeah, and we're we're far from even being able to achieve those uh, those minor improvements. Oh, that's that's me um, editorializing. Quote: Every morsel of meat we eat is slapping this tear-stained taste of a hungry child. Nice one. Quote: There's simply no such thing as humane meat, dairy, and egg production. Don't be misled by quaint farm names and claims. Oh, I really love that one, boy. I love it when they give their, themselves these cute little names. 
Quote, when you buy from animal agriculture, you're supporting environmental racism. Well, that sure is true. Quote, push the envelope wherever we are to confront what is destroying our planet. Well, yeah, it's outrageous that we should try to do that. It's really, who needs the planet? Uh, the only humane choice is vegan. Well, I, I, I'm sorry I wasn't at that conference because it sounds really, really great. And But, you know, Hannah doesn't think so. She thinks that this illustrates activist groups' opposition to all animal agriculture, no matter what animal welfare standards are in place, and how they will employ a wide array of tactics to attempt to achieve their goals. Well, good, Hannah, you finally caught on. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. I, guess, I guess the truth can hurt. All right, finally, advertising board dismisses 500 complaints about, quote, misleading pro-meat TV campaign. This is from our friends at Plant-Based News. They're reporting on this, and this is from the UK. Uh, and they're talking about this uh, camp advertising campaign, a uh, one and a half million pound campaign, launched by the Agriculture and Horticulture Development Board, uh, which sounds like a governmental uh, uh, entity, which claimed that animal-derived meat and dairy provide, quote, essential nutrients our bodies need. Now, you know, like, think about that. This is a very cleverly worded uh, adver advertisement, and I think it's definitely misleading, but it is this, it is, they're very careful about their wording. They're so tricky. And so the advertising board said that this was all just fine and didn't imply anything that wasn't true. This is one of the things they said, quote, the story of a food so natural, it takes the rain from the sky and the plants we humans cannot eat and turns it into something wonderful. Oh my God. Essential nutrients our bodies need to help us stay healthy. Meat and dairy. Enjoy the food you eat. Eat balanced. I like that last line, eat balanced, because at least they, they aren't saying you should eat just meat and dairy, which I wouldn't put past them, but it's exactly that kind of thing. Like meat and dairy do have nutrients. They have calories. They, you know, they have protein. And so you can say that they do have essential nutrients our bodies need to help us stay healthy. But don't you think that like hearing that for somebody who doesn't know implies that that's the only place you can get those nutrients. They never say that, you know, those nutrients are widely available from other sources. They also say that an ideal diet offers variety, nourishment, and enjoyment while remaining in harmony with the planet. Well, that one really is, you know, it's vague, remaining in harmony, but, you know, on the environmental front, I would say that is pretty, <laughs> pretty much of a lie. And it says this about plant-based eating. Meat and dairy naturally provide nutrients, including the essential vitamin B12 not naturally present in a vegan diet. Well, you know, that's basically sort of true. B12 isn't naturally present in a vegan diet, and you do have to supplement with it, which is very, very, very easy to do. It is, you know, pretty untrue about saying that meat and dairy naturally provide B12 since we all know that animals are fed B12 supplements so that, because they wouldn't get enough B12 in order for their flesh to have that B12 that people are looking for. But, you know, now we're getting a little technical, I suppose. And the advertising board said, oh, this is all fine. It's not misleading. Quote, the ads did not state that consumers could not obtain a balanced and healthy diet unless they eat meat or dairy. I think it certainly implied that. I do. And it's factually accurate to say that vitamin B12 was not naturally present in a vegan diet. Well, that, that is the truth. Was anybody actually complaining about that statement? There were other complaints about the environmental um, implications, which I think was, was uh, 
you know, it's hard to argue that saying that this is in balance with the planet is not, not, not a little misleading. And, you know, they also said that the imagery, which we're not looking at, of course, was misleading and point out that in the ads, the li all the animals are grazing in open green fields. Well, yeah, misleading. That's exactly what that is. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, you can support us by joining the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts, or you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. That's me. And to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez for her work doing research and for Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for his work editing. Thanks to Lori Johnston of Two Trick Pony for her graphic design services. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook page on Tuesday for your bonus content. Thanks so much for tuning in and for changing the world for animals.